Hi, it's your Bitcoin dad here. I'm going to introduce my interview with Jill Williamson, aka Crypto Mom, because right after we recorded, CoinCentric came out with some clarification on what they think the correct legal challenge to the OFAC Tornado Cash sanction is. And it's a little different from my discussion with Crypto Mom. I think that's because Coin Center is very focused on the congressional law from which OFAC derives its ability to sanction. And inside this law is a definition of entities that OFAC can sanction. Clearly, this list of entities was written before smart contracts existed. And as such, this law might not apply to Tornado Cash. At the same time, I think Jill makes a really good point that the ultimate goal of OFAC is to suppress terrorist financing happening via Tornado Cash and other privacy tools. Jill points out that you could actually just sanction privacy protocols via current OFAC law. That would likely be legal. So I'm not sure who has the right approach. I think both probably. It's probably a good idea for Coin Center to go after this sanction with everything they've got. At the same time, Jill is really focused on helping individuals and companies get into compliance so that they can do business in the moment. Her opinion is interesting for anybody in the space who cares about how legal challenges interact with the quote unquote unstoppable code of blockchains. At the same time, if you're building in the space, I think you should really listen to what Jill is saying, because you could brush up against something like OFAC, and OFAC is a terrifying institution with a very broad mandate. Please enjoy my conversation with Crypto Mom, and remember, you can always get in touch, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com, at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter, or boost in with a Podcasting 2.0 app. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and today I am speaking with our favorite crypto lawyer, Jill Williamson. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here again with Bitcoin Dad on the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I really had a hard time saying that. <laughs> that was perfect. Today, we are going to discuss the recent actions around Tornado Cash, a privacy tool on Ethereum, what actually happened, what some of the legal complications might be, and perhaps what some of the potential knockdown effects of this legal action by the Treasury will be on the broader crypto and maybe even Bitcoin ecosystems. We will also discuss some recent developments in the SEC versus Ripple lawsuit. I think we're going Going to dig into Tornado Cash first because it's moving pretty fast and seems quite spicy. So Jill, can you give us a little bit of background on OFAC, the entity in the U.S. government that is going after Tornado Cash? Sure, but I would say it's not that they're going after Tornado Cash. They're going after people who use Tornado Cash, which I think is a distinction with a difference. By way of background, OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control. They live within the Department of Treasury. They're responsible for implementation and enforcement of U.S. economic sanctions. And the economic sanctions are primarily intended to meet certain foreign policy or national security policy ends. So the sanctions fall within a couple of categories. Usually one is territorial sanctions. You know, people were familiar with the Iranian sanctions, the Cuban sanctions, or even sanctions against regions of Ukraine like Crimea, where it prohibits transactions in or 
out of those territories as a very general matter with exceptions, et cetera, et cetera. There are list-based sanctions, which is what we'll be talking about today, individuals and entities that are placed on the specially designated nationals list. And then there are what have generally been called sectoral sanctions, where certain industries have been sanctioned from time to time. So when, for example, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, OFAC issued a sanction against the deep sea oil industry of Russia. So, you know, they weren't put on a list per se. Every deep sea oil company wasn't put on a list. You were prohibited from doing business with deep sea oil companies or companies that had deep sea oil operations. So just sectorally, as it were. The way you describe the different categories of OFAC sanctions, this is kind of terrifying because these sanctions can be incredibly broad. They can be very vague. Perhaps you could even argue that some of these categories might be subjective. A company that services deep sea oil businesses, are they a deep sea oil business? So you might not know if they're sanctioned. So it seems like being put on this list has a chilling effect because this is a strict liability regime. If you interact as a U.S. citizen with one of these entities, boom, 30 years in jail. So it seems like this is kind of a big deal. OFAC is a huge deal. You know, make a few clarifications. Yes, OFAC is strict liability insofar as you will be violating a sanction even if you don't know that the transaction occurred or if the transaction is unlawful, but you can't go to jail without intent. So the strict liability only applies to the the civil potential civil penalties, which means fine. If you have reason to know or some certain some level of knowledge that the transaction is occurring, then you could get into criminal penalties and that's when jail and it's 20 years, but 20 years is still plenty enough. It is terrifying. And I think people really don't realize how terrifying OFAC is for a couple of reasons. One is it doesn't just apply to company. OFAC applies to every U.S. person, no matter where they are in the world. So if you're a U.S. citizen or a U.S. permanent resident, it applies to you even in your personal dealings. Now, for most of us day to day, what are the odds, right? But now that, you know, we're moving into this cyber web three realm where you could sit in your basement in Seattle and interact with any number of anonymous persons around the world, it's becoming a little bit more live and more personal for a ton of folks. Also for businesses, of course, who operate in this space. But unlike other anti-money laundering type regimes, like legal regimes in the US, it doesn't just apply to companies and it doesn't just apply to financial institutions. You know, somebody who's selling apples on the street side theoretically has the same obligation to not sell apples to sanctioned parties as IBM does or Amazon. Now, on a risk basis, what's the likelihood that somebody selling apples on the street corner is going to come across someone on the SDN list? Pretty small. When you move into Web3, those those risks and the likelihood goes up a lot. The actual event that precipitated this OFAC action against Tornado Cash is likely the Lazarus Group, which is a North Korean-affiliated hacking group who is known for exploiting DeFi, Web3, Ethereum-type smart contracts and taking the hacked proceeds of these contracts and mixing them through Tornado Cash to get some on-chain privacy. I've heard estimates that at the time of the sanction, 37% roughly of Tornado Cash liquidity could be traced to various types of hacks or exploits. So that means that the majority of Tornado Cash usage is in no way obviously criminal. It's probably individuals seeking on-chain privacy. And I think while many people think that privacy is a human right and financial privacy is a human right, 
In my opinion, I don't think that's necessarily true given current financial regulations such as the Bank Secrecy Act and various KYC AML rules. But we know that many people, public people, have interacted with the Tornado Cash smart contract including Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum. So can you talk about what the potential implication for innocent, quote unquote, users of the smart contract now that it's been added to the SDN list? Pending legal challenges, as long as these sanctions remain valid, there are no longer, quote unquote, innocent users of Tornado Cash. Um, Anyone who interacts with the smart contract or the website or any of the listed wallet addresses is violating OFAC sanctions and could at a minimum be fined and in a maximum could go to jail. That's the implication is that going forward, there are no innocent users of Tornado Cash. Even if you were previously using Tornado Cash for an activity that wouldn't otherwise be unlawful. So just to enhance privacy or not to disguise unlawful activity or not to launder money or anything like that, you might not want people to be able to trace all of your financial transactions across the chain. Fair enough. But going forward, there are no innocent users. Because Tornado Cash was added to the SDN list, so it's basically a list of Ethereum addresses that are now on this list, does this mean that deploying a similar smart contract to the Ethereum chain would not be sanctioned? It would do the exact same thing, but it would be a different list of addresses associated with that. Yeah, that's a super interesting question. So the specific listing says Tornado Cash, a.k.a. Tornado Cash Classic, a.k.a. Tornado Cash Nova, website tornado.cash, digital currency address, alternate, you know, so and then it lists also digital currency addresses that are associated with Tornado Cash. It's an interesting question whether someone could stand up a similar smart contract, I think ultimately the answer is yes, but it depends on who that someone is because we don't really know enough facts about Tornado Cash, the quote unquote entity. And I know there's a lot of dispute about whether Tornado Cash is an entity. There's been a lot of cries of, you know, it's just an autonomous smart contract. There are factual questions in there that we don't know the answers to. We don't know who may or may not be able to modify that smart contract. We don't know if anybody's benefiting or receiving revenue from that smart contract, or at least I don't know that. And the things that I've read have been inconsistent in the understanding of the facts around that. So if it were someone that were arguably part of Tornado Cash, the quote unquote entity who stood up a new smart contract to do the same thing, then I think there's a large chance that that would be deemed an attempt at an evasion, which would also be prohibited. If it was someone who with no connection to what might be deemed Tornado Cash, the entity, again, understanding it's a fairly amorphous idea at this point, then no, not sanctioned because smart contracts that do what Tornado Cash does are not what's sanctioned. Tornado Cash is sanctioned. That's really interesting. And I think that that kind of narrows the scope of this action because one of the concerns was, are we sanctioning protocols now? Are we sanctioning technologies? And if the SDN list sanction is a static list of contract addresses, even though there might be people associated with the general Tornado Cash entity, that means that the technology behind Tornado Cash can be redeployed, potentially. Maybe. Okay. 
again, there's so many facts that are unknown here, but it seems like you could argue, depending on facts, that the technology behind Tornado Cash is part of Tornado Cash. So redeploying that specific technology, maybe not clear. Developing a brand new smart contract that does something similar, that's, I would argue, clearly different than redeploying the existing technology. I guess what I was getting at is that Tornado Cash essentially creates eCash. And so a smart contract that creates eCash and then allows you to redeem it for Ethereum, this is a pretty general thing. I don't even know if you could patent that. And so that sounds like if there was a sanction against this use of technology, that seems to me like it would probably get pretty close to a freedom of speech issue. Let's get into the question of the Tornado Cash entity. And I think that the complication here is that Tornado Cash is a smart contract on Ethereum. This smart contract, based on what I've read, is autonomous. It doesn't have a admin key or a backdoor that's obvious to reviewers of the code. And so I think when you said that users of Tornado Cash are being sanctioned, not Tornado Cash, that's pretty key because Tornado Cash is just code. And so treating it like a malicious bank or foreign company would be silly because it's not self-aware. It can't respond to incentives. It can only do what it's programmed to do. But there's also a Tornado Cash DAO, and it's known that the Tornado Cash developers raised money to deploy Tornado Cash. I think that it's not clear right now how much control this DAO has over the contract. My sense is it doesn't really have any control, but do you think that the presence of a DAO that may have fundraised based on some sort of affiliation with Tornado Cash opens people involved in that up to more liability or danger as a result of this sanction? Starting with the relevance of whether Tornado Cash is an entity. I mean, it, it does matter because the statutory authority and, and the order itself is to sanction persons and persons include natural persons and entities, but entity is really broad. And so it includes an association, a group, a subgroup. So it doesn't have to be a sort of formal entity. If you'll recall, you know, Hezbollah has been on the SDN list. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Hezbollah probably hasn't formed the Palestinian equivalent of an LLC for its operations. And yet, you know, that was sufficient to, for it to be deemed a, a sanctioned entity. So it does matter whether the smart contract could be deemed an entity. It is not an uninteresting question. It's just a question to which we don't have enough facts to answer. The DAO adds another layer. So if the DAO is benefiting, for example, if, you know, there's some transaction fee that goes to the DAO, if the DAO does have some governance control over the smart contract, the tornado cash as itself, then yeah, I think every single individual involved in that DAO has potential liability. I mean, A, going forward, holding that token is likely subject to sanctions. It's blocked property is associated with the sanctioned entity. Any subsequent transaction would be violation of the sanctions. But also any of the purported money laundering, DAOs, I think there's some myths around DAOs that are really important to dispel as enforcement ramps up. DAOs don't protect you from individual liability. And in fact, for my mind, they're way worse than a traditional LLC or corporation or association, because at least under US law, if you haven't formed a, a formal business entity like an LLC, if you're acting in collaboration with others, 
to do something, you either have a general partnership or a conspiracy or a general partnership that's formed a conspiracy, which then is racketeering. But a general partnership means that each actor is jointly and severally liable for each other actor and for the actions of the organization. So instead of creating less liability because it's ostensibly decentralized, you've actually created more liability, which is really scary. Going forward, now that the DAO has been sanctioned, depending on the the actual, again, facts, so much unknown, but depending on the actual relationship between the DAO and the protocol, I would be really, really concerned. Let's talk about why Tornado Cash was sanctioned as opposed to, say, Samurai Whirlpool or Wasabi Wallet, which are Bitcoin technologies that provide a coin join anonymity type service. So the why why Tornado Cash was sanctioned, according to OFAC, is the link between known hackers and proceeds of hacking and Tornado Cash. And then the underlying then additional link for using the proceeds of those hacks to fund North Korean nuclear program. That's obviously a much higher button issue than just hacking, which is a pretty pretty hot button issue all by itself. Whether some of these other technologies will also be sanctioned, I don't think we've heard the end of this. So I don't want to say that Tornado Cash was chosen over or instead of. I think time will tell. But it's a familiar strategy. It's taking the more traditional anti-terrorism financing strategy and applying it to hacking, especially in the years since 9-11. But even prior to that, a very popular and very common anti-terrorism strategy is to deny access to financial activity to the terrorists. So shutting down the banking systems, um, you know, denying them access because if they can't move money, they can't pay people, they can't buy bombs, they can't, et cetera, et cetera. Right. This is essentially a version of that. It's denying access to financial systems that hackers use to make it harder for hackers to hack or for hackers to profit from their hacking. It's a version of what's been happening for decades. At the same time, we can estimate that around 70% of Tornado Cash usage was people who weren't doing anything wrong. So it seems like there's this kind of collateral damage of these anti-terrorism actions, which on the surface seem very reasonable. I mean, hacking and then using the proceeds to give Kim Jong-un a nuclear bomb, that just sounds terrible. No one wants that, I'm pretty sure. At the same time, the implication is that any privacy service can't really do privacy because for a privacy service to work, you kind of have to let Kim Jong-un use it and your Bitcoin dad and whoever wants to. So that seems kind of problematic. And it, from my perspective, it just seems like the legal system, OFAC, Treasury, everyone seems completely comfortable with granting zero financial privacy to the common person. It seems like, you know, perhaps if you're wealthy enough, you can enjoy shell companies and relative levels of financial privacy. But for the common person, the moment you try to do anything financial, financial privacy related, suddenly you got to worry about violating OFAC. It just seems very unfair. Is that something that you can offer a perspective on or am I going too far off script? I can offer a perspective, but it's not probably a welcome perspective. And that's that there's never been financial privacy, at least since the passage of the Bank Secrecy Act. To the extent that blockchain was an attempt, you know, and Bitcoin is an attempt to claw back financial privacy. I think ultimately government's going to say, eh, you didn't have it in, in TradFi. I don't 
don't see any reason why you need to have it in alternative or DeFi or Web3. Is that right? I don't know. But has it been sustained for, you know, decades and decades and decades that the risk of anti-money laundering is such that it's okay that people don't have financial privacy? It's been absolutely sustained for a very long time. So is it problematic that the 70% of people who use Tornado Cash for non-criminal purposes now can't? Maybe. But like I said, until 2013, nobody had financial privacy anyway. Again, is that right? I don't know. But the answer is legislative and it's not new. It's just getting back to status quo as far as government is concerned. Thanks. That's a really good perspective. It seems like we are entering a new phase of regulation on on digital assets. OFAC has blocked certain Bitcoin addresses in the past, but I think what's different about those actions were those addresses were associated with people, with specific people. And unlike Ethereum, where this Tornado Cash address sort of sanctions many, many people who are interacting with this smart contract, who have funds in the smart contract, previous OFAC actions seemed a bit more constrained. Do you get that sense that this is a new phase? And if so, where do you think it's going? Six months or so ago, when OFAC sanctioned the Russian exchange, whose name, of course, I can't remember right now, for their involvement in laundering money from hacks, I sat down and I took a look at the executive orders around the cyber sanctions. And I realized that OFAC is the solution to something that's sort of been puzzling me about DeFi enforcement for a while. And it's the idea that most of the users of these protocols, whether they're DeFi protocols or blenders or mixers or exchanges or whatever, the users may be in the US, but the protocols themselves are outside the US. And to some extent, they may be decentralized. If they're controlled, the people control them may be difficult to identify. So for a number of reasons, the enforcement against these protocols is complicated and expensive and resource intensive. But on the other hand, the SEC rules in particular, they're designed to protect investors. So it doesn't make using the protocol unlawful. It makes offering the protocol unlawful to the extent that it is a protocol that would be, does require a license. They don't all, but there's a lot of DeFi protocols that under the law should be licensed and are not. Using them is not unlawful under those laws because those are laws designed to protect investors, not prosecute against them. So those initial sort of cyber sanctions by OFAC, it occurred to me that this is the tool because through OFAC, you can enforce against the user's activities, not just the developers or protocol controllers, whatever you want to call them. And it's so much easier. I would not be surprised if this doesn't herald an increasing use of OFAC as a tool against particular DeFi protocols under these cyber executive orders. Because also the executive orders are fairly broad. They can sanction an entity that is deemed to cause a risk to quote-unquote critical infrastructure. And arguably, some or more of these DeFi protocols are not just useful for money laundering, which is where they've started, is laundering the funds from hacking, but could present or could be argued to present a danger to the economy overall. And through that lens, it might be possible to then sanction interaction with these DeFi protocols. So I would be surprised if we don't see more and more OFAC sanctions on a broader basis. So not just related to hacking, not just related to terrorist financing, but starting to get into risks 
beyond that. I think OFAC is a really powerful tool for shutting down what the SEC and FinCEN have wanted to shut down for a long time. Chilling, because we know that the executive branch has broad powers to protect various economic aspects of the United States. So the moment a DeFi protocol gets too big or trips some line and you can classify it as an economic risk, then you can OFAC sanction it. So that's pretty wild to think about. The argument that a risk to the economy in general is sufficient under these cyber executive orders, it's untested and unused, but it's there. And I will be curious to see whether OFAC doesn't stretch to calling, you know, certain parts of the economy critical infrastructure. It's not to say that it's certain that that can or will happen, but it strikes me as a possibility. One aspect of this event, which I find very interesting, is that I actually expected privacy on Bitcoin to be sanctioned first. Frankly, I didn't know too much about Tornado Cash. And in retrospect, Tornado Cash actually has done so much more volume than any Bitcoin privacy service. Even though these Bitcoin services have been in operation for much longer, Tornado Cash has done over $7 billion of volume in a short period of time, whereas privacy on Bitcoin is a fraction of that. There's also a privacy currency called Monero, and it's well known that I believe the IRS has an open bounty out on anyone who can help them de-anonymize Monero transactions uh, can claim a $50,000 or some sort of paltry reward. What's interesting is privacy on Bitcoin in general is more centralized, in my opinion, than this smart contract because the two most popular coin join protocols on Bitcoin, Samurai Whirlpool and the Wasabi Wallet coin join, they actually require a centralized server to pass messages between the participants. So it's non-custodial, but someone needs to provide a message passing function, and that represents a central party that you can sanction. So in some ways, I thought that probably would be a lower hanging fruit. What's interesting, though, is that the Tornado Cash smart contract is in many ways superior to these Bitcoin solutions. But it seems to me that the fundamental design of Ethereum makes it very vulnerable to OFAC list type SDN sanctions. And the reason is because Ethereum addresses are accounts. And that means that all of the funds in that address are just added together and they form an account balance. And so if you sanction the address, everything that comes out of that address has been kind of tainted by the sanction or the OFAC action. Whereas with Bitcoin, Bitcoin has a UTXO model. Essentially, there are actual chunks of Bitcoin. There are actual coins of different denominations. And so when you sanction an address, you can sanction some of the coins that were sent in transactions to that address. But actually, Bitcoin is much more granular. And so it would be interesting to see what the next level of OFAC sanctions on Bitcoin are, because unlike Tornado Cash, you can't simply sanction 20 addresses and hit $400 million of Ethereum like you can with Tornado Cash. In Bitcoin, that list of addresses might be, I don't know, 40,000 lines long or something like that. So it's kind of a different game in that respect. I wonder if you have any thoughts on these differences and how that might play into the legal perspective on sanctions and privacy. Honestly, the technological differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum, I haven't thought a ton about. 
I would guess that they chose Tornado Cash both because of the volume and because of the volume of hacker transactions and the connection with the North Korean nuclear program. If you're starting with the worst actors, it sounds like they probably would have been pretty high on the list. My guess would have been that it had more to do with that than the differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum technology. I don't know. I mean, they can update all the time. You know, is it practical to be adding thousands and thousands of Bitcoin ad- addresses? I don't know. One thing that would be interesting, and it's another place I'll be curious to see if they try to go, is a sectoral sanction on privacy protocols. If you can sanction deep sea oil industry, you could sanction privacy protocols and essentially make it a sanctions violation to interact with a privacy protocol. And then you don't have to identify specific addresses or specific protocols. Will they go there? I don't know. FinCEN has said very clearly since 2013 that there might money transmitters, that they should be licensed and that they should have anti-money laundering compliance programs. And, you know, obviously they don't. You know, is this the beginning of a backdoor way to shut them down when, as I said before, despite all the best hints, crypto didn't say, yeah, let me come into compliance. Crypto said, hold my beer. Maybe this is the way they're getting at that because they can't get at the protocols, but they do still deem the availability of these protocols to be a national security risk. Time will tell. It would be a continued expansion of the use of this authority to point it at a type of protocol, especially when there wasn't a a foreign policy behind it. There's a national security policy, but there's not necessarily a foreign policy, which in the past, these sectoral sanctions have been used sort of for foreign policy ends, like let's target Russian deep sea oil because that will hurt the Russian government. You know, that was a foreign policy thing, not a national security thing. Yeah. I mean, if I were OFAC, I would be looking at sectoral sanctions against these privacy protocols. This is so much darker than I thought. It's great. Now, one slightly amusing, of course, not if it happens to you, aspect of this event is that someone has been sending funds out of Tornado Cash. So they've been violating sanctions and they have been sending these funds to well-known holders of Ethereum who have published their private addresses. And that highlights an interesting difference between cryptocurrency and legacy payment systems, which is this is a push payment system. If I know your address, I can always send money to you. You can't refuse it. And another interesting aspect of Ethereum is because of this account-based model, as opposed to Bitcoin's UTXO-based model, if I send you a sanctioned Bitcoin from a sanctioned address, you can freeze that UTXO and it can't touch all of your other UTXOs. So if OFAC calls you up, you'll probably be okay because you're like, hey, I didn't touch it. You can have it if you want, whatever. But with Ethereum, it's an account. And so when you get OFAC-tainted funds, they just mix with everything in your account. This seems like kind of an interesting problem because Brian Armstrong, Jimmy Fallon, I think maybe even Vitalik has received tainted tornado cash funds. And this has potentially tainted millions upon millions of dollars worth of Ethereum in their accounts. These transfers really highlight what I anticipate or imagine is an unintended consequence of these sanctions. And it's, as you said, the idea that you can't refuse the funds. And so every single one of those people has committed an OFAC violation because, as we talked about, strict liability, which technically leaves you with the option of voluntary self-disclosure. But first, you'd have to know, right, how many of us in our private wallets are constantly checking against, you know, the OFAC lists and trying to determine whether we've 
been unwittingly the recipient of a transaction that violates sanctions. So first you'd have to know, which is a pretty heavy lift for individuals and not something that most individuals are tracking or caring about. And then you'd have to do a voluntary disclosure. I anticipate some guidance from OFAC on this in the near future. They've already put out guidance on the blocking. You know, when you get an asset that's subject to sanctions, you're supposed to block it. Traditionally, if it's fiat, you're supposed to put it in a separate interest-bearing account, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, a lot of that doesn't apply to crypto. They have an FAQ on what they expect for blocking of assets if it's a crypto asset. I don't think it actually matters that it's fungible, that you don't know which Ethereum came from the blocked address in the same way that it doesn't matter for fiat as long as you put aside the right amount and don't touch it and report it as blocked. I do I do think that obviously the unwitting recipients, it's been a fairly notorious issue. So I do expect that there will be some FAQs or guidance or maybe even a, I want to say general license, but I don't know how you would draft a general license that would allow unwitting recipients off the hook and not allow everybody to claim that they're an unwitting recipient. So some kind of guidance, some easy reporting form, something along those lines, I, I would expect. Because yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, hopefully an unintended consequence that they didn't quite realize that you can't not do these transactions, even if you don't want to. We've talked a lot about Tornado Cash, and I think we have to wait for more news on that front. There's some additional elements. A developer was uh, arrested in Amsterdam by a Netherlands cybercrime unit. I think we can't really talk too much about that until we discover what the exact charges are and if that relates to the Tornado Cash DAO or actual smart contract development. But in the meantime, there's been some news on the Ripple case. And so a little bit of background, basically the SEC has sued Ripple and they're alleging that Ripple was aware that XRP was a security and then went ahead and uh, issued it and did a whole bunch of stuff with it and did not register as a security. Since we're running low on time, do you mind summarizing the SEC case? The SEC is basically alleging that Ripple had fair notice that XRP was a security. And therefore, they've brought a number of claims and unregistered securities, public offering claims related to that. The interesting development, which isn't super recent now, had to do with a series of motions. You know, motion practice is what you call it. It's all of the fighting that lawyers do about what seem to be boring procedural issues before you get to an actual trial. The fun part about this is that Ripple's really, really bringing it to the SEC. They've been doing some outstanding lawyering, huge props to their litigation team. What happened that generated this conversation between us is that Ripple had put in some discovery requests, which I don't have, but most discovery requests read something like all documents referencing it are related to. And then apparently it was related to the speeches that Hinman had given about whether every crypto was a security and specifically the speeches that he gave saying that he thought that it was likely that Bitcoin and Ether were not securities. The SEC first filed a motion saying we shouldn't have to produce all these related documents because they're not relevant. And they argued that they weren't relevant because Hinman was giving those speeches in his personal capacity, not in his capacity as a representative of the SEC. And anything that he said in the speeches was not articulating official policy of the SEC, and therefore it wasn't relevant. This is an interesting argument, or it becomes interesting, because for any of you who have been to these speeches, which they do at you know trade conferences or the American Bar Association or meetings, whatever, government officials always. Make 
make this disclaimer. Everything I'm saying here is my personal capacity. It's not being said on behalf of my agency. But, you know, of course, the only reason they're there is because people want to hear what's going on at the agency. Their personal opinion is not interesting. If they were just Joe Blow off the street, who cares? You know, we care about Hinman's opinion. We care about Hinman's speech because of his role with the SEC. He was the chair at the time. So the court said, yeah, nice try. So sad. Too bad. It's relevant. So then they designated all of the documents between Hinman and FTC attorneys privileged, which would make them not subject to discovery. And Ripple said, wait, these aren't privileged. We should have these. So they had another hearing. The judge actually looked at the documents and the judge gave the SEC kind of a hard time. And just to back up, attorney-client privilege is not every conversation that you have with your lawyer. The communication has to be confidential. It has to be communication. It has to be between an attorney and a client. And it has to be for the purpose of seeking legal advice. So the judge said, these aren't privileged because you've just told us in your last motion that he was in his speaking in his personal capacity. And if he was speaking in his personal capacity, he wasn't a client of those SEC attorneys. So it's not legal advice and it's not privileged. What I love about this is that it finally puts paid to the hypocrisy of these public officials making public pronouncements, but then calling them personal pronouncements. I think that this little kind of boring bit of motion practice is going to have huge impacts going forward on the way that these public statements are treated. I look forward to seeing whether this does have big impacts in agencies and, you know, public statements of officials. It's also, of course, notable, and I think what drew it to your attention was that the court kind of criticized, not kind of, like criticized the SEC by, he said literally, that the SEC is adopting its litigation positions to further this desired goal, not out of faithful allegiance to the law. And, you know, while that's something that in private litigation we're used to folks doing, we've all watched Suits. I know that's your favorite show. It's not something that we hope that our government agencies do. We hope that our government agencies act in furtherance and allegiance of the law, not to some convenient end or, you know, not to win for winning's sake, but to win because they think it's the best thing for the law. So it was a fairly strong criticism, you know, said in judicial language, but unusual to get such a criticism from a court. If it were any other plaintiff, I would be clapping, except the irony of this world we live in is its ripple. And I know as a lawyer, you have to wait for the legal judgment. Uh, But for our listeners, just to remind everybody, ripple is the worst cryptocurrency scam out there. It's so bad. It's gone on for so long. Just the fact that it hasn't been regulated out of existence and its founders thrown in jail for issuing illegal securities, manipulating the market, marketing to retail, performing pump and dumps on their own customers. It's really bad stuff. And to top it all off, it was created by Jeb McCaleb of Mt. Gox. He's like the exit scam extraordinaire of the Bitcoin crypto era. What a guy. There's a whole history with Ripple. We can't get into it here, but I'm going to link to another podcast, which explains it quite succinctly. And I guess everyone can make up their own mind about this. But thank you so much for getting into this with us, Jill, and for your time. It's always a pleasure. And before you go, maybe you could give our listeners a handoff to wherever you'd like to point them. You can find me at gravislaw.com on LinkedIn, Jill Williamson. Reach out by email or through LinkedIn, Jay Williamson at Gravis Law. And in a couple of weeks, you'll find me in Chicago where we're moving soon. Obviously, you must be moving to Chicago. Chicago to hang out with Jack Mahlers of Strike. Hope that goes well, and I'm sure he'll be happy to see you. Thanks so much, Jill.